All right, Acts chapter number 11, before we read our text, I'd like to give you a little bit of a recap from chapter number 10. It's been several weeks since we preached on Acts chapter number 10, but if you will recall, in Acts chapter number 10, a brand new thing took place. A Gentile, which is a non-Jewish person, accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and became saved. This was a brand new thing, and all of the disciples who had previously been told by the Lord to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to don't go to the Gentiles, God was getting ready to let them know that he's shifting gears. Now, listen, folks, God doesn't change. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary some 2,000 years ago, It was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament sacrifices and prophecies. It was the day of days, the moment of moments in all of human history, past, present, and future. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, there were definitely some things that changed. So Cornelius, an Italian, a Gentile, he gets saved and... When Peter had went in to preach to him, he went into his home, and that was something that the Jewish people were not, they were forbidden to go in and be with the Gentiles. But let me just read this here. Look at verse number 44 of chapter 10. Peter has seen this vision of all of these unclean animals coming down in a sheet, and the Lord said, rise, Peter, slay and eat. And Peter's like... I can't do that, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's forbidden. I've always, I guess in modern terms, Peter could would say, I've never eaten anything that's not kosher. And so he resists. God says to Peter, look, what I have cleansed, don't call it common or unclean. And Peter still had a hard time with that. But the, the vision... And the miracle was so profound that when Cornelius' servants showed up at Peter's door and said, hey, Cornelius is calling for you, God had already told Peter that that was going to happen. Peter said, well, I better obey what the Lord has said. And so he went and he preached to Cornelius. And as I've already said, Cornelius accepted Christ, believed the word of God. So here we are in Acts chapter number 11. And let's pick up the narrative in verse number 1. It says, And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was coming up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. Now let me stop and explain what that means. They that were of the circumcision. Now Peter was a Jew. And when God made the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was the father of Israel, the father of the Jewish people. In Genesis chapter number 12, God called Adam out of Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia, modern day Iran. And he said, I want you to go to a country that you've never seen before. Abraham had a few little detours of his faith, but ultimately Abraham believed God and he followed God, and in all of that process of God making Abraham the father of many, many nations, God said to Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless them that bless thee, 
and I'm going to curse them that curse thee. And he said, in thee shall all families, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That's something that we need to remember because that promise that God made to Abraham, he has never even made any intimation that that has changed. Even though the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, their Messiah, even though God said, I'm placing them on my shelf, we need to keep in mind that they're God's people and that's God's shelf and we need to continue to follow the word of God and bless them that, and, and understand that God's going to bless them that bless thee. There's people in America, I, I think that believe that we are prosperous as a nation because of democracy. And yet, the pattern of democracy has been tried in literally hundreds of other nations and has failed miserably. In fact, America is one of the few nations in which democracy has been effective as it has today. Uh, Some people have said, well, it's because of our capitalism. And yet, democracy, capitalism, and so forth has been tried in hundreds of nations and has rendered itself totally ineffective. I'll tell you the difference. The difference is God. And... One of the things that I believe is responsible for God's special blessings upon this country has been historically we have stood with Israel. The Bible makes that clear. This is not a political statement. This is a spiritual, religious, Bible-based statement. We need to continue to stick with Israel. doesn't mean that Israel's right or perfect. Israel's messed up. But they're God's business. And so we just need to trust God to take care of His business, and we need to do what God says. And you know what? That principle will apply for a lot of things in life. Just do what we're supposed to do and let God take care of what He's supposed to do. And so, they of the circumcision is not just specifically talking about Jewish people, because Peter was a Jew himself. But when the Bible refers to they that are of the circumcision, or In Colossians, we find a word, uh, beware of the concision. These are religious Jews that put so much emphasis on that covenant of circumcision that they believed that you had to be circumcised and become a Jew before you could ever be saved. And that's not true. That was their, they were so zealous of that Old Testament covenant that they couldn't see past it even though they had accepted that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and their Messiah. As we continue reading our text, verse number 3 says that they, uh, as these circumcision came and contended with him, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and didst eat with them. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, Obviously, Peter was worried about this encounter. He had heard that they of the circumcision were a little upset with his story. And I guarantee you, as he was traveling back up to Jerusalem from Joppa, he's probably going through this in his in his mind, and he's trying to figure out, all right, if they say this, how do I respond? And he's kind of a little bit worked up about this. 
Verse number 5, he said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descend as it had been a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Upon the which, when I had fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay, and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. Don't you find it interesting that Peter calls him Lord and yet resists what his Lord is telling him to do? You know, it's common for believers to overvalue or, or excuse me, to, uh, excuse me, overvalue areas of personal success while at the same time overlooking areas of failure. You know, I'm looking at a crowd here this morning and you're looking at me and I have to say I'm certain I have no fear of contradiction Every single one of us have strengths and we all have weaknesses. Every single one of us have successes in our Christian life. Every single one of us have failures. Human nature has a tendency of overvaluing our successes and kind of just ignoring our failures. If we're not careful, too much of that, too extreme of that, will become like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. In verse number 9, God says, But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. As I've already said, God didn't change, but the effects of the cross have changed many things. Verse number 10, And this was done three times, and all were drawn up, again into heaven. Behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter." who shall tell thee words whereby thou and thy house shall be saved. What are they being saved from? Not from Roman occupation, not being saved from some debilitating disease, not being saved from the oppression of men. They're being saved from their sins. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, every single one of us need to be saved from our sins. I'm glad that I'm not going to hell. I'm glad that I can say that with certainty, not because of my own worthiness, but because of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross. I'm glad that I am saved from hell, but before I could ever be saved from hell, I first had to be saved from my sins. And I thank God that the words that Peter preached to Cornelius, the same words are responsible for saving my soul as just a young boy. And I'm glad that those words are still powerful and effective today. 
If you have never been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news is, is it's never too late to be saved. I don't know how old that Cornelius was, but I do know this, that God will save sinners regardless of our age. And I thank God for that. It says here in verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, listen to this, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Listen, folks, that's what salvation is. It's not a religious ritual. It's not water baptism. It is not communion. It is not tithing. It's not church attendance. It's not being good to your neighbor. Salvation is a work that God does in the heart. The Holy Ghost fell upon them. This wasn't some kind of a fit. This wasn't some kind of a you know, fantastical show that just seemed confusing. This was the Holy Spirit came upon them and literally changed their heart, changed their life from the inside out. I think about 30, 33 years ago, when, as I mentioned, I got saved as a young boy. But as I grew up, my heart just drifted away from the Lord. And I don't have time to I don't even have full understanding myself of the causes of that, but I do know that by the time I was 19 years old, my life was a total wreck. And I had God on the inside, the Holy Spirit, that was just constantly speaking to me, tugging at my heart, making me feel bad whenever I did wrong, always trying to protect me from doing wrong and trying to lead and guide me. And I knew there was an invisible hand that was trying to get me back on the right path. When I finally yielded to that voice on the inside that said, Randy, you need to get right with me. When I finally yielded to Him, it was such a joy to see and experience God changing me from the inside out. I believe that God did that when I was a young, just a young man. But it was just kind of sitting there idle because my heart had drifted. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're not saved or backslidden. The good news is the Holy Spirit, if you'll yield to Him like Cornelius did, if you'll yield to Him like Peter did, He will come in and He will make some drastic changes in your life. It won't be a religious checklist. It won't be necessarily an emotional fit, but it will be a meaningful act of faith that will make all kinds of wonderful changes in your heart and in your life. Verse 16, Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that He said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the light gift as He did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace, and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Notice the connection of repentance to salvation. Once again, it's not baptism. It's not just a canned prayer that we pray. Some people say, well, I want to get saved. I want to make sure that I say the right prayer. It's not about 
the words that we say. It's about what we're doing and believing in our heart. And repentance from sin, repentance toward the Lord Jesus Christ is always necessary for true salvation. As we think about this story, I'd like to introduce our title here this morning. There's some things here about the Apostle Peter that we can study and we can analyze that I believe will be very helpful for each and every one of us. This story displays a common problem in Peter's character. You know what that problem was? Now think about it. Here's Peter. He just experienced the salvation of Cornelius. But he didn't get to enjoy telling that story. Why? Because he was worrying about what the Jews in Jerusalem and in Judea, what are they going to think of me? How am I going to get through this? You know what Peter's problem was? He was a people pleaser. And I want to speak to you this morning, the time that we have left, on the people pleasing trap. Let's pray. Father, bless this message here this morning. Lord, we've already seen some very redeeming truths in our text as we read it, as we preached on it. We thank you for the cross of Calvary. We thank you for the salvation of Cornelius. We thank you, Lord, that you opened up salvation to all of us lost Gentiles. I pray now as we go through this message this morning, Lord, that there would be helpful things in each and every point. Give us wisdom, give us grace, help our hearts to be attentive. May we hear and listen to the Holy Spirit. May we respond and do what you'd have us to do. There be anyone here today that's not saved, I pray that you'd save them. There be someone here today that's struggling in this area of people pleasing. I pray, God, that you'd help us, Lord, to get victory and to get our eyes back on Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So other than just this story, there are some other things about Peter's life that really show that Peter had a problem with being a people pleaser. Peter was a very stoic, very self-controlled man. His whole story here, when he told the Lord, look, I've never eaten, I've never touched anything that was unclean or uncommon. Peter had an impeccable track record when it came to obeying that particular portion of the Jewish law. Now, I've heard preachers stand behind the pulpit and talk about various aspects of the Christian life. I've heard people say that they got saved on such and such date, and from that point until years later, they never failed to pray one hour every single day. And I thought, wow, I can't say that. I've heard preachers stand and say that they have read a certain amount of the Bible every single day without missing for you know, 20, 30 years, and I think, wow, I can't say that. I've not done that. I've heard preachers talk about uh, some things that they've done to the point that it didn't encourage me, it really discouraged me. And yet at the same token, Peter had some good qualities here. He was not supposed to eat unclean or common things, and so Peter had that self-control, that self-discipline, and that is certainly commendable. But we wonder sometimes of what his motives were for being so self-controlled and so assertive. If you'll recall, Peter was the one that spoke out against the Lord when the Lord was telling all of his disciples that he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem and they're going to put him on a cross and they're going to crucify him. 
Boy, Peter had a rough time with that, just that thought. He said, he said, far be it from thee, Lord. And he rebuked Jesus for even talking that way. What do you, why do you suppose that was? I think it was probably because Peter, like the rest of the disciples, had forsaken all. I mean, they had staked everything in their life. He forsook his business. He forsook his home, his family. A lot of different things that Peter had forsaken and staked it all on the fact that Jesus was going to be their king and their Messiah. I think that when when Jesus told him, I'm going to be crucified, Peter in his heart and in his mind was thinking, wow, we've been preaching that you're the Messiah. What is everybody going to think of us? If you go to the cross and you die, if you recall that Peter was the one who denied the Lord three times, he did it around the Romans, he did it around just a young maid there at the fire, and he even cursed because he didn't want to be identified with Jesus, who at that point, Jesus would have been considered the criminal, the loser, if you will. Peter had a hard time accepting the fact that now he's identified not with the future king, but with the person that it seems like the whole Jewish religious crowd, they're all against him. All of these things Peter struggled with. I don't think that Peter ever fully got over that character flaw. In Galatians chapter number 2, this is after Acts 11, this is years later, where uh, Peter and the Apostle Paul are together. It says in Galatians 2, verse number 11, this is Paul speaking. He says, When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision." Notice that Peter still, I'm not saying that Peter was a bad guy. I'm just simply saying that Peter was like all of us. He had some areas in his life where um, he needed some help. There are many types of people pleasers, many different ways in which we can fall into the trap of being a people pleaser. I'd like to take a few minutes here and talk about 10 different signs. This is not my message, but still an introduction. 10 signs you may be a people pleaser. Before we get into this, I'd like to say that people pleasers often confuse pleasing people with being kind or being unselfish or being gracious. There's a fine line between being kind to people and being a people pleaser. Number one, if you're a people pleaser, you pretend to agree with everyone. Now, listening politely to people, even when you disagree with them, is a good social skill. But pretending to agree just because you want them to like you, it can cause behavior that goes against your own personal values. I wonder how many people have gotten trapped into sinful behavior just because They didn't want somebody to dislike them or think bad of them. People-pleasing is a bad thing. Kindness, graciousness, unselfishness is a good thing. But sometimes 
if we feel that need that we've got to please everybody, we need to be aware it's going to cause us some problems eventually. Number two, you feel responsible for how other people feel. It's healthy to recognize how your behavior influences others. But thinking you have the power to make someone happy, well, that's the problem. Listen, folks, our personal happiness should be between us and God and not dependent on any other human being. Now I think about, I'm a husband, and one of my joys in life is I like it when my wife is happy. I like it when people around me are happy. And I struggle when they're not. But I know that in reality, just like I have to deal with that emotion, we all have to deal with that emotion that our happiness cannot be dependent upon another person. If you're dependent upon anyone besides Jesus Christ to make you happy, you're going to be miserable much of the time. My command from the Lord is to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. But uh, I'm not responsible to take the place of what only Jesus Christ can fulfill in her life or anyone else's life. The same thing goes to whether you're a father or a mother, a husband, a wife, a pastor. If you're in a place of authority, we want the people under us to be happy, but we don't have control. And to try to take that responsibility upon ourselves is just going to create frustration and futility. Number three, you apologize often. I'm not against apologies, by the way. Apologies are good. If you mess up, if you hurt somebody, if you offend somebody, we ought to be quick to say, hey, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. In fact, you'd find that in your marriage relationship, or any relationship for that matter, that a sincere apology would really go a long way. And by the way, there's two parts to an apology. There's the person who says, I'm sorry. And then there's the person that says, I forgive you. Or there's the person that says, well, I forgive you, but it's just going to take me some time. And I realize that there are offenses that do take some time. Just a, you know, just a flinging a little, I'm sorry, doesn't just make everything magically perfect. So if the, if the apology is sincere, then you'll be patient and you'll understand that, you know what? I hurt that person. I need to give them the space to kind of get over it and accept my apology and forgive me. The same token, if you're the one that was offended, and someone apologized to you, don't use that as a little power trip that, hey, now I'm in control and I'm going to hold this over your head. Apologies and forgivenesses need to be sincere. And by the way, let me just say this, life's short. Life's short. You know, those grudges that you're holding, um, do yourself a favor and uh, try to get over them. I was going to be sarcastic and say build a bridge and get over it, but I'm not going to say that. 
That would be rude. But truly, there are a lot of things that we harbor, and sometimes we harbor these feelings, and we even forget what, what the big deal was. They just keep building up. Keep a short list. If you've got a list that's not short, then just, just deal with it. Sometimes in a relationship, the best thing that we can do is the same thing that we do in our relationship with God. Aren't you glad, believers, that all of our sins, that God places them under the blood of Jesus Christ? That the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin? We ought to do the same thing that God does and just say, you know what? All of our past failures, all of these contentions, all of this squabbling, all of these hurts, all these injustices, let's just put them under the blood of Jesus Christ and let's just start fresh with a brand new clean slate and let's move on in our relationship from here. And then, when things come up, just keep a short list and just get it right and don't be stubborn and don't be don't harbor that and hold those grudges. Apologies are good. But excessive apologies often are because you are unjustly blaming yourself or you're afraid that other people are blaming you. Frequent apologies can be a sign of a much bigger problem. Number four, I've got to move quickly. You feel overburdened by the things you have to do. I feel like that a lot of times, don't you? Sometimes we have a lot of things to do. But people pleasers almost always feel like this. Why? Because they don't know how to say no. And they're always filling their schedule with all of the pressures that everybody else that they perceive is placing on them. They think that they have to do everything that the kids want to do. They think that they have to go with the system and what everybody... Listen, I'm telling you what, the culture of this day and age, if you're raising children, let me tell you something, today's culture will run you ragged if you think that your child has to play every sport and join every club and be part of everything that they want to do. They will run you ragged and you're going to look 18 years later, you're going to look back and you're going to say, we ran ourselves ragged and we don't even really know our kids. Well, you could replace a lot of that people-pleasing pressure, that trap, just by simply saying, you know what? I can't let the world around me and everybody else, what they think, control my schedule. That brings us to number five, you can't say no. Whether you say yes and follow through or bail out with an excuse, you need to realize that every time you say yes to one person, you're saying no to another. I had to learn this the hard way. Every time that I don't say no to someone who says, hey, um, hey, um, Brother, will, will you do this for me? And automatically say yes, not realizing that when I say yes to that person, I'm saying no to my wife or no to my child because I can't be two places at the same time. Every time you say yes, there's probably someone or something that you're having to say no to. Number six, you feel uncomfortable if someone is angry at you. Just because someone is mad doesn't necessarily mean you did anything wrong. 
but you can't stand the thought of someone being displeased with you, and because of that, you're more likely to compromise your personal values. Number seven, you act like the people around you. It's normal for other people to bring out different sides of your personality, but people-pleasers try too hard to impress others and lose sight eventually of who they really are. Number eight, you need praise in order to feel good. While praise and kind words can make anyone feel good, people-pleasers depend on validation and only feel good when they get it. Number nine, you go to great lengths to avoid conflict. It's one thing not to want to start conflict, but avoiding conflict at all costs means that you'll struggle to stand up for the things and the people that you really believe in. And then finally, number 10, you don't admit when your feelings are hurt. Denying that you're angry, sad, embarrassed, or disappointed, even when you're emotionally wounded, keeps a relationship superficial. These are 10 basic symptoms of the people-pleasing trap. And so now I want to talk about some causes and cures. First of all, number one, in our text, we've got Peter as an example. Peter's strong convictions, they became sacred cows. It's not good to allow our strong convictions to become sacred cows. We live in a day and age when strong convictions are being tore down. Uh, there's a form of Christianity in America today that, and I've listened to it, I've turned on the TV and I've read books and I've seen some of these modern, contemporary, mega church pastors, it seems like the only thing that they preach hard against is believers having strong convictions. Everything else, they just ignore it. I mean, all kinds of wickedness. I mean, they don't even say anything mean about the devil. But boy, if a believer comes along and is strong in their convictions, and they're not the same convictions that the preacher has, or he doesn't want to preach it to his congregation because he might lose members, then the only thing, the only people that they preach adamantly against are believers that have strong convictions. And I believe that's total hypocrisy. I don't believe Peter was a hypocrite. I just believe that his strong convictions caused something to kind of morph in his character into being a people pleaser. It became a sacred cow, something that he was proud of, and he just never could fully get over that. I read about a new Mennonite preacher who... Um, Back in those days, whenever they'd have communion, they had like a three-part service. And one of those parts of the services was uh, they'd kind of have, a, instead of passing the plate and the uh, elements like we do, they'd all kind of sit down and they'd have a meal. And one of the things that they did in that three-part ceremony is they'd have a foot washing. And everybody in the congregation would get in a circle and the way that they would do it is one person would wash the person's feet next to him, and then that person would in turn wash the person's feet next to him and so forth. This new preacher, he started, he's, he's conducting this ceremony. He says, he says, all right, he said, I want to start with you. 
and I want you to wash the person's foot um, on your right. And so he had him going in this foot washing in a counterclockwise circle. They had always done it in a clockwise circle. And so when he said, go ahead and start, they just froze. Nobody did anything. They were afraid to move. They thought, we, we don't know what to do. Finally, one of the older deacons uh, kind of raised his voice and he says, you know what? He said, just this once, we can do it that way. But next time we'll do it clockwise. They had always done it that way and they couldn't function outside of that. You know what happened? Their strong convictions had morphed into sacred cows. They'd lost sight of the meaning. They were all just caught up in the particulars and they were just the stuff that really mattered was going over their head. I have seen many, many people reject the truth or not even consider the truth for fear of what other people will think of them. I am certain, and I don't mean this mean-spirited, but I am certain that there are many, many people that are in hell today just simply because they knew what the Bible says was true. They knew what that preacher told them was true, but they knew that if I believe that, then I'm going to have to suffer some consequences. And so because they didn't want to displease certain people that meant something to them, they rejected what God's Word has to say. I know good Christians who were taught at a Bible college or a seminary, and then later on in life they'd be listening to a preacher and the preacher preach something or teach it differently than what they taught. And they look at it and go, hmm... In their mind, they're saying, hmm, I kind of see that. I see where he's coming from. I see where he's getting at. But uh, I can't accept that because what would my mentor or my alma mater think of me? I'm not going to mention names just because I don't want to create any awkwardness, but there was a very famous like-minded preacher He's already gone home to be with the Lord. Had a large Bible college. He was well known. If I said his name, probably most of you would know who I'm talking about. He was presented with the issue of, do we have a perfect English Bible? And uh, while later on in life he came to that conclusion that we do, Earlier on in his life, while his mentor and close friend, who didn't believe we have a perfect Bible, was still alive, in his own words, he said, well, I can't believe that because what would Dr. So-and-so think? Strong convictions can become sacred cows. We've got to watch out for that fear of what others will think. So what's the cure? The cure is recognizing that every strength has a corresponding weakness. Peter had a strength, but that weakness kept coming in his back door. We need to realize, listen, if you are a very passive-natured person, that can be your strength. Some of the most, the sweetest people that I know are very passive by nature. 
But if you're not careful, there will be sinful behavior come in the back door. And if you're not careful, you will let people walk all over you and you'll end up miserable and no one wins. And in many cases, you're trying to please people that they don't really care anyways. Remember, every strength has a corresponding weakness. Secondly, causes and cures of people-pleasing, authority figures who seemed difficult to please. Now, I underlined the word seemed because I know that there are certainly authority figures that are impossible to please. It may be a mom or a dad. But I put the word seemed because the reality of it is, is in many cases, not all, your case may be that you had a mom or a dad that was just, I mean, impossible to please. But I also know that some of us grow up and we think that it seemed that way, but it really wasn't as bad as we felt that it was. That's natural. That's natural. I can remember when I was under conviction as a teenager. My brother-in-law, Brian Johnson, was always somebody I looked up to. I mean, he he had a walk with God, and he uh, he had a he was a very principled man, and still is. And I can remember as a teenager, he would pull me aside and he'd try to, you know, tell me, look, your lifestyle, Randy, you're not doing right. I was under conviction. I knew, I felt guilty inside. And so I tried to kind of meet God halfway. And I know this sounds kind of crazy, but when I was in high school, I got around some friends and they listened to this heavy metal garbage. And it is garbage. And so I started listening to it, and I started liking it. And all the while, the Holy Spirit inside of me was saying, this is poison. This is garbage. I knew it. I knew it. Nobody had to tell me. I don't think that I had even heard a preacher preach against that garbage when I was growing up. It was accepted. I remember going to... Christian churches with my friends to dances. I remember a dance at a Christian church where they actually played, which one was it? ACDC, Highway to Hell. And I just thought, you know, I remember thinking, wow, that's kind of cool. (laughs) Now keep in mind, I am not walking with the Lord at that time. But inside, I knew that all of that was wrong. So I thought, okay, I'm going to give that up, and I'm going to start listening to the music that my parents, what I grew up with that my parents listened to. So I started listening to Country Western. And so I'm showing off to my brother-in-law, and so, man, I pop in my, uh, my cassette, Alabama. And I was so proud of myself. And I said, I said, hey, Brian, what do you think of that? And he was just kind of quiet, and he was, you could tell he was a little bit awkward. And so uh, he, he kind of brushed me off, and so I persisted. And I think probably about the third time that I brought it up, he said, well, you know, Randy, he said, that's really not much better than the other. They're still singing about drinking and adultery 
and all of this other stuff. And so at that point, I just thought, I was so angry at him, and I thought, man, you just can't please him. That's what I thought. Now looking back, and I know some of you just got under conviction because you listened to that. I'm not trying to get you under conviction. I'm not trying to step on your toes. I'm just telling you the way it is. And I thought, just can't please that guy. Now, after I got right with the Lord, and I started listening to the Bible and the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, I started seeing the things the way that he saw it. And then I just thought, man, I was such an idiot. But there are some people that seem like they're impossible to please, but I know in that scenario, it's like he was just right. And now I thank God for his willingness to tell me the truth, even though he knew that I probably wasn't real happy with his reply. So, you may have had an authority figure that was hard to please. And because of that, it puts you in this mindset to where you became a people pleaser. As a cure, I'd like to say this. Remember that everyone you try to please is dealing with their own issues just like you. You might have had a dad that was hard to please, but you don't realize that maybe he grew up with a dad that was hard to please, or a mom that was a piece of work. You just never know what people have went through, and at some point, at some point, we've got to grow past it and realize that, you know what, my behavior, I can't live my whole life with my mom or my dad or anybody else as an excuse for my own failures. I've got to take responsibility, and it's time to grow past these excuses. You might have been mistreated, but chances are that that person that was an authority figure, they're just going through their own problems, and they might have been doing the best that they could, but uh, unfortunately, you ended up getting hurt because of their own personal weakness. Number three, number three, let me say this. Self-esteem is not the problem. You talk, you read anything about psychology, you talk about being a people pleaser, the first thing that they're going to say is you just suffer from low self-esteem. Listen, your problem is not self-esteem, it's a sin nature problem. Ever since Adam took of that fruit in the Garden of Eden, the human race, we come into this world and we're broken. And the only thing that can fix us is the Holy Spirit of God. And the only way we get the Holy Spirit of God is by receiving Jesus Christ and what he did on Calvary's cross. We are a fallen race. We have a fallen nature. And the Holy Spirit comes in and changes that. We get a new nature, but unfortunately, until we get a new body, we're still dragging that old nature through our life. And it's going to create some conflicts. It's going to create, there's going to be times when the new nature, the new man is, is, um, 
is leading and winning. And then there's going to be times when our old tendencies, our old nature just continues to rise back up there. Do you know what the Bible teaches as a cure? The Bible doesn't teach low self-esteem or high self-esteem. The Bible teaches no self-esteem. Sounds like an interesting concept. Let's see what the Scripture says. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What's the cure? The cure is quit worrying about yourself. Get over yourself and start thinking about other people, not to please them, but thinking about them because you genuinely, truly care about them. Number four, toxic relationships. Hey, who hasn't had a toxic relationship in their life somewhere? If you don't have one, then buckle your seatbelt. You'll have one eventually. You might have grown up with toxic relationships. You may have one that you're having to deal with now, but toxic relationships can certainly cause the people-pleasing trap. Some people will do anything to please others in order to compensate for that toxic relationship. It puts you in rejection overload. That toxic relationship just drains every bit of internal strength out of you, and the only way that you feel that you can get that back is by someone else's satisfaction or pleasure in you. But all that does is just, it's like the hamster running on the wheel. You never get anywhere. And you just keep trying to fill that void, and that void cannot be filled by other people. The cure, and I hope you'll listen to this closely, Remove toxic relationships or learn to manage them. There are some toxic relationships that cannot be removed. Maybe a close family member, somebody that maybe a parent. Uh, You may have a parent that that's a toxic relationship and you know that the Bible says you're supposed to honor your father and mother. You can't remove yourself from that. But you will or you should learn how to manage that. I counseled a sweet lady, the church that we were at in Idaho, and she had a toxic relationship with her mother. And she was, uh, the lady that I'm counseling was uh, certainly in her 50s, and her mother was older, and she would come in and just cry, and she'd tell some of the things that her mother would say to her, and the way that she would treat her, and it was almost like, uh, like her mother just used her as a whipping post. And I couldn't counsel her to don't speak to your mother anymore. But the best that I knew to say, as I said, sister, I said, you don't have to be around her every single day. You don't have to have that close relationship that we want. You know what you can handle. There may be days when you're feeling strong and hey, you can be around her for five hours. But there's going to be other days where you can't be around her, something else that you're dealing with in life, and you may just have to learn how to manage that relationship. 
Come around for your beatings, but just don't think that you have to be beat up every day. She told me, um, told me about a year later how that had helped her. And, you know, I wish that we could fix everybody and fix all of our problems, but, you know, sometimes the best we can do is just try to manage them and move on. Number five, caring too much about what people think. How do we cure that? We cure that by making principles a higher priority than people. Listen, don't start, don't stop caring about people, but make sure that you keep people and principles in their proper perspective and priority. In conclusion, you've heard this before. You can please all of the people some of the time, some of the people all of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. I know um, I was for about 13 years, I was an assistant pastor in a large ministry, and I know that um, being an assistant pastor, I appreciate the staff that God has given here over the years and the staff that we have today. But after being an assistant, I know that sometimes it's a very awkward position to be in. You're a pastor of the people, but you're also serving the man who is the pastor. And sometimes it puts you in awkward, no-win situations, no matter what you do. I remember after serving as an assistant for about four or five years and having to deal with some of those struggles of being a people pleaser and figuring out that balance, how do I manage this, I finally came to the conclusion I said to myself and I said to the Lord, I said, look, as long as my pastor is happy with me, then I'm okay with that. doesn't matter if everyone in the church is unhappy with me. As long as he's happy with me, then I'm okay with that. Well, that helped me for a while. That helped me for a while. But what happened is I allowed that mentality. What I lost sight of is that just like I'm an imperfect person and an imperfect pastor. I was working for an imperfect pastor. We're all sinners. Pastors or deacons or lay people, it doesn't matter. We're all sinners. And I had allowed that to come to the, to, in my mind to where I almost felt like that if my boss is happy with me, then God must be happy with me. And the devil just kind of snuck in there and something that was a good intention, something that was honorable, the devil just kind of came in the back door and it caused me some problems. Listen, God made us all with an inherent desire for approval and acceptance. Every single one of us. Some have a higher desire or need than others. But in Matthew 25 and verse number 21, it says, His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Listen, that that desire is in each and every one of us. I hope and pray that when I stand before God one day, that I'll hear those words. I mean, can you think of anything better in all of eternity than to live this life and then stand before God and God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I mean, have you ever won a prize and you really didn't feel like that you deserved it? 
Man, we all get lucky sometimes, don't we? I know sometimes there are teams that were inferior and they just got a lucky play and they hold the trophy up, but the other team was far superior. That happens, doesn't it? But when we stand before God and He says, well done, it's not going to be luck because He is the righteous judge. And brothers and sisters, He knows every single thing about us. I can't think of anything that would be more precious than to hear the voice of God say to me personally, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's something in each and every one of us that just craves that and desires that. In Matthew 3, verse 17, the Bible says that there was a voice from heaven as Jesus, the Son of God, was being baptized. The voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, God looked down at Jesus and He says, I'm well pleased with you. Now as we wrap this message up, there's a point here that I think is very vital not only for help for being a people pleaser, but help in our walk with God, period. In Romans chapter 8 and verse number 8, the Bible says, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now wait a minute. I'm here and I'm in my flesh. I'm in this body. But the very next verse in Romans chapter number 8 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Just like Cornelius was baptized in the Holy Spirit, he got saved. And listen, if we are truly born again and regenerated, then as far as God is concerned, He doesn't see us as being in the flesh. He sees us as being in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if God can look down and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he can look down at Randy Mitchell who has his son living inside of him and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I don't know about you, but that encourages my heart and that strengthens me and that makes me feel like that if God's pleased with me, then I'm not dependent upon anyone else to be satisfied, or to be pleased with me. In Ephesians chapter number 1, there's a phrase, I'll just say it to you for sake of time, where Paul says that God has made us accepted in the Beloved. You know what that does for my heart? That says, look, if God accepts me because of Jesus Christ, It's not dependent upon my performance. It's not dependent upon me being good enough because in my flesh, there's nothing I can do that can please Him. But once I get Jesus Christ inside, once I get saved, now He's pleased with me. Not because of my performance, but because of Christ's performance. And you know what that does? That doesn't... That doesn't make me say, well, I'll just do whatever I want now because He's pleased with me. You know what that does? That gives me a heart for God that says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not serving Him for His pleasure and acceptance. I'm serving Him because of His pleasure 
and his acceptance. That one little thing can totally change your life from being a struggle and a battle. I just see, I know what's right. I know what I ought to do, but I just can't seem to get the victory and do it. Well, you need to realize that Jesus Christ is the one that won the victory. You just got to receive and you just got to believe. In Ephesians chapter number one, it says that he has accepted us. He chose us in him. But the question that remains, if God chose you, the question for this hour, will you choose Him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank You, Lord, for the acceptance that we have through Jesus Christ. Thank You, Lord, that because of that, we don't have to be in the people-pleasing trap. I pray, Father, that some of the things that we've said here this morning has been a help I know every single one of us struggle in one way or another. We all have different reasons, but Lord, everybody wants to please somebody. But I pray that we would look past people and we would look to heaven and realize that the only thing that's going to matter in all of eternity is pleasing Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that we can please you because of what you did on Calvary's cross. I pray that you'd bless the people. Thank you for their attentiveness. Thank you, Lord, for them being here in church today. And I pray for a blessing on each and every one. In Jesus' name, amen.